When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So Preston North End, they became the first Invincibles, the first team to go, which Arsene Wenger, of course, did with Arsenal in 2004. But I think Preston North End did it in 1888. And of course, that inspired other Northern clubs. So that's why the North became the real dominant force, because for their players, for their teams, football did offer an, an alternative life and a much more prosperous life and a much more fulfilling life. Whereas down south, the likes of Charles Alcock and those other teams, you know, the engineers, the wanderers, they were Corinthians. They were still very much amateur, middle, upper middle class, gentlemen, playing it for the, for the love of the sport and that sort of, you know, the, the, the Victorian ideals of manhood, etc., and not for money. Hello and welcome to the pod. Today's episode is on the history of English football with Gavin Mortimer. There's lots to discuss, including football's origins, the different social classes and their approach to football, the changes in transportation and technology which spread the game, the absence of women's football, and we talk about the impact of the two world wars. At my school, I played a primitive form of football, and I put a link in the show notes for the rules, as well as Gavin's book, which I've definitely read, and ways to get in touch with me as well. Gordon will be returning next Saturday with World War I British Commanders, and we've responded to listeners' comments on that, so please keep them coming. We're going to be carrying on into the Victorian era with more British Commanders. Now, just quickly, if you want to know a little bit more about me, there is a link to an interview I took part in with a very talented podcaster. It's called Growing Up with Delia Burgess. There are plenty of great interviews on there that are far more interesting than me, so do give it a go. Anyway, plenty more great history to come, so if you can give me a five-star rating, that would be fantastic. But until then, I'll hand you over to me, talking with Gavin Mortimer on the history of English football. Gavin, welcome back. Last time you were on, we were talking, well, it was a discussion with Tom Petch that didn't end in rude words, which was <laughs> which was a win for me. But this... Trouble, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it did really well, actually. People like that. But today is the history of football. And I wanted to talk to you because you've written... You wrote this book, uh, History of Football in 100 Objects, which I think was to 
it wasn't a FIFA. You didn't get a suitcase of cash from Set Blatter for this, did you? It was. It, <laughs> this wasn't an official FIFA. This is a more football association association football anniversary, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't commissioned. I, did, I certainly didn't get any uh, <laughs> a suitcase of cash. More's the pity. But um, no, it was. It was. It was not an authorized book, uh, which of course was great because it allowed me to be quite. You know, it's a little bit. It's history, but with a little sort of a wry smile because particularly the way that football is is now it's 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 a sport but it's also show business but it was fascinating from a historical point of from sort of wearing my two loves of sports and uh, and history and it was it was fascinating from a historian's point of view just to see how football evolved 150 years ago yeah and so I think probably many listeners are familiar with maybe the sort of early football clubs that competed for the FA Cup probably in the late 1880s, 1890s. But going further back, should we start right at the beginning, you know, where you get, okay, we all know it was a pig's bladder booted around a medieval town and everyone basically it was an excuse to have a bit of a, a bit of a ruck, a bit of a fight. But then it evolved in in the public schools. I'm getting that roughly right, aren't I? Yeah, you are getting that roughly right. And actually, talking of Set Blatter, of course, it was Set Blatter who uh, I think it's fair to say had a rather strained relationship with the British, particularly the English, who um, during his time as FIFA president said the Chinese invented football, which they didn't. The Chinese, like as you mentioned, the medieval English and and the medieval French would rush around in their hundreds kicking a sort of a pig's bladder or or some sort of object resembling um a ball and and but it, it was not football as we know it was just simply kicking something down the street that's right it was i suppose you know thomas arnold the headmaster of rugby from uh in 1828 to about the uh 1842 and, and his approach and that this whole ethos of a victorian time of of muscular Christianity, a healthy body equals a healthy mind. And of course, taking young men's minds off the opposite sex, et cetera, and getting them to run around. And so these things came together and um, in the middle of the, of the 19th century. And so football began to take shape as we know it. There began to be rules. And I suppose that one of the real driving forces was a chap called Charles Olcock and he uh, organised a meeting at the Freemasons Tavern in 1863 to, to draw up a list of rules to bring some sort of order to these games, which could you know, go on for um, they've been played in the public schools, crucially too in the north of England, particularly Sheffield. And you'd have groups of, of young men and they'd be sort of organised. The rules were beginning to come through. They're organised into two teams you know, anything up 20, 30 aside. I mean, it could last for a couple of hours without anyone actually scoring a goal because it couldn't, wasn't really decided on what constituted the goal. So Charles Olcock met with some his very middle class um, at, at this tavern in, in London, 1863, drew up some rules. Around about the same time, the Sheffield Association, much more working class, were also working on some rules. And the sort of the two, to cut a long story short, combined, produced the Football Association. I mean, really very rapidly, that an extraordinary creative time in terms of football, in terms the 1860s, the 1870s, the, the clubs began to emerge. Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, Notts County, I mean, 
Arsenal down south, Woolwich Arsenal. And of course, then you had the first FA Cup. The Wanderers beat the Engineers 1-0. And the same year, 1872, was the first international England-Scotland. Queen's Park in Glasgow being the powerhouse in Scotland. And then it, it took off. And of course, the Welsh and the, uh, the Irish associations formed. And Britain was very much at the forefront of the, the development of football. But it, it caught on so quickly. And just an extraordinary time for not just football, of course, but for for other organised sport. Because the eighteen, I mean, I also often think that what what a, what a decade for a sports lover. The eighteen seventies. You had the first football international in eighteen seventy two, eighteen seventy one, the first rugby international, England and Scotland, and of course eighteen seventy seven. As every cricket buff will tell you, first Ashes Test. England and Australia so yeah wow what a time tennis too what a time to be alive <laughs> it just makes you think how miserable life was before the <laughs> 1870s it's true isn't it I mean it, it's you sort of had you know for the old for the toffs to use that vernacular you had you know uh, hunting and a fishing and, and uh, jousting going back a bit further but that's right if you if you wanted to be a if you're a working class lad wanting to let off steam in the early 1800s for, you know a, a out of a factory. All you could do was chase the pig's bladder down the street. <laughs> yes. I've read a few biographies and maybe this is, this is probably a bit later actually, because you, you start seeing clubs being set up abroad and I don't want to dwell on that too long, but I'd read a very interesting book on Barcelona and Athletic Bilbao and and then I think cl- other clubs in northern Italy. And they're all set up by British businessmen who've travelled abroad and set up their own club there. And so it really, it's not only a growth in Britain, it's a growth on the continent thanks to those Brits who are, who've taken, I, I suppose, the rules and their structures abroad with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that actually the best example is Charles Miller, who went to Brazil in 1894. And Corinthians, the great um, Brazilian club, are named after the, the Corinthians, the, the English club. And, and they also, I think it was a Scottish expat who went to Argentina and started the game. So, um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's not being sort of jingoistic. It is just saying that the British, um, with their love of travelling at this, well, still, but particularly at that time, a lot of British expats working abroad and they took their love of sport with them. And, well, it's certainly, alas, from a footballing point of view, we we gave the game to the Brazilians and the Italians. And what did they do? They they threw it back on our faces by beating us on a regular basis. So um, it's an extraordinary, again, just to see how how quickly this, this game spread. And, uh, yeah, if you compare it to rugby, it's interesting, isn't it? I always think it's fascinating to, to compare and cricket too. The, the the development from a global perspective of uh, cricket and rugby, which were very much stayed within the British Empire. So India and and obviously Australia, New Zealand, India, later Pakistan and the West Indies, of course. Cricket and then rugby, South Africa, New Zealand and Australia, the three powerhouses and Samoa, Fiji, etc. But if you look at football, how football just took off everywhere. And I think that's the, the real advantage and the strength that football has today over rugby if you look at the the football world cups you have look at the most recent world cup morocco reached the semi-final and you have south korea and and mexico and and all these teams iran and reach you know getting into the world cup final and doing well whereas at rugby 
it's still very much, unfortunately, dominated the quarterfinals and nearly, you know, it's, we get excited if Fiji make the quarterfinals. Um, but otherwise, it's always the, the the same old oppositions making the quarter, same old teams making the quarterfinals. So that's the beauty of of football. It's such a an easy game to understand. And yeah, it's, it's the simplicity. Then that's yeah, why it's grown. It's is it, it's not because administrators because I have a f- lot of problems with the uh, cricket administrators. It, it's not down to administrators wanting to keep the game within their own control and not wanting to see it spread globally no i think i think in football it's such a an easy game to understand that's obviously a problem for rugby and to a, an extent cricket it's just it's just such a basic game isn't it you know mm. there are two mm. goals you got to put this put this ball in the back of a net and if you look at i'm always amazed i suppose rugby is really my game i'm amazed that even if you watch even if you watch England's World Cup victory two, 20 years ago, 2003, you will see how the physique of the players has changed. If you go back, I mean, if you go back just recently, we're talking to you um, just a few days after this the sad uh, death of Barry John, the great Welsh fly half. And there's been a couple of clips of him doing the rounds on, on social media. And you know, it's just a, it's a different world. He's, you know, they're all just small blokes, really. You know, you get a couple of, you know, fairly big lads, but but by today's standards, the big lads back then are would be playing in the backs today. If you look at football players, it's still very much a game. But it doesn't the physique doesn't really come into it. You still get a lot of the look at Messi. You know, he's not a, he's he's a small lad, no different in size really from someone like Pele or Maradona or Tom Finney going back further, etc. So. Um, it hasn't changed that much, and I think that's the uh, that that again that that is something that makes it more accessible than, than rugby or cricket. So perhaps you can clear something up for me. Then you mentioned Notts County, and I think I, I was reading through your book because most people would probably assume that that's the oldest football club in the world, and that's it's true to a certain extent. But the Sheffield FC is, is sort of a rival to that title isn't it yeah i think notts county is the oldest club still in existence i think i think sheffield then went and changed was it's not the sheffield united or sheffield wednesday as we know it if if i'm wrong in that i'm also going to be we're going to be inundated with furious sheffield fans but (laughs) um that's certainly notts county likes to think of itself as the oldest club in existence and it's yeah it's interesting that very much the northern clubs and the, the midland clubs were the dominant forces. And it wasn't really until Herbert Chapman took over at Arsenal in 1925, I think, that London became a strong club. Tottenham had had some success before the First World War, but it was Arsenal who really became for a period of, well, from the the late 20s throughout until the Second World War, the dominant club in England and, and being a a southern club that was a change from from the past where it had been dominated by the clubs from from Liverpool from Manchester from Sheffield etc from Nottingham and that was very much I think tied in with professionalism and that for it was still very much you know resorting to cliches but a, a true cliche in this case that the northern clubs were more working class and for them of course it was professional and the southern clubs were still had a rather gentlemanly ethos to them. And it was Herbert Chapman who who made Arsenal professional and hard-nosed, introduced shirt numbers, 
introduced tactics. And of course, he changed the name of uh, Gillespie Road to the, the tube station to Arsenal and uh, very modern in his approach. And in, in a way, was the first really modern manager. And, and that was good for the game because it made it, it gave a power base in, in London. And, and of course, today, you know, London and the, the northern clubs in Liverpool, Manchester in particular, are the, are the three dominant areas in the country. And just diving into the sort of class issue as well. I mean, Alcock, because these public schools had a sort of primitive form of football and they were all different. Now, I have to make a confession here. I, I did play one of those forms of football at my school and it was a little bit like the modern football that we know, but you weren't allowed to pass the ball forward. You could only dribble and then that would mean you would have all your teammates would effectively create a kind of guard and then your opponents would have to come in and, and basically it would turn into a bit of a ruck, not dissimilar to the medieval sort. Yeah. And so they were sort of fairly low scoring games. It was actually one of the few sports I was any good at, Gavin, <laughs> which is typical when it's the only right. place you can play it is when you have to finish at 18. Yeah. Yeah. What was it that Alcock really tried, because I guess they were quite influenced by rugby as well. Was Alcott really just trying to say, look, you know, come on, this is all so disorganised. We all need to be playing the same sport here. Is that basically what he was saying? That's basically what it is. And I think, too, distinguishing themselves from rugby, which had was also developing at this time. And and as we mentioned earlier, the first rugby international was was a year before. So no doubt that uh, the likes of Alcock and a lot of the Southern gentlemen came from the same background as the, as the rugby innovators and knew each other. And there was an element of competition. But while they were wanted rules, it was still very much amateur. Whereas for the Northern teams, they saw it as, as a, a way of making money. And even, and, and this happened quite quickly, even escaping their fairly... Yeah, a life of hardship, really. A lot of them would have worked in the mills and, and in mines. And and suddenly they had the opportunity of making a few bob playing football. And the, the man who was instrumental in that was Billy Suddle at Preston, who was a, a mill owner. And he got hold of Preston North End, became the, the owner, became the manager. And in fact, I probably uh, did him a, a misservice when I said Herbert Chapman was the first manager as we know it today, I'd say that Billy Sudo was. And he had a, a rather paternal regard towards his players. He would uh, get them to cut down on their drinking, to stop their drinking, even uh, watch what they uh, ate. And an early the, Arsene Wenger. An early Arsene Wenger, etc. And, and it paid off because no, one, no other club was doing this. So Preston North End, they became the first Invincibles, the first team to go, which Arsene Wenger, of course, did with Arsenal in 2004. But I think Preston North End did it in 1888. And of course, that inspired other Northern clubs. So that's why the North became the real dominant force, because for their players, for their teams, football did offer an, an alternative life and a much more prosperous life and a much more fulfilling life. Whereas down South, the likes of Charles Alcock and those other teams, you know, the engineers, the wanderers, they were the Corinthians. They were still very much amateur, middle, upper middle class gentlemen playing it for the for the love of the sport and that sort of you know the the, the Victorian ideals of manhood, etc., and not for money. And you were saying before we started recording, which is really interesting about around the uh, 
the development of the train networks throughout the country was also hugely important in the development of the game. Yeah, I think that I mean that is just that is particularly crucial because and and also not just allowing players to travel further afield to play, and that includes going to Scotland to play, but allowing fans to follow their team. So this really started, um, and, and it was amazing how quickly it spread. And so, and the train companies, of course, cottoned on to this very quickly and would offer match day packages. And soon that that grew to a whole weekend package. When the FA Cup started, come down to uh, come down to London for the for the weekend. You'll get your ticket, hotel included, etc. And uh, and so the supporters loved that. The third factor, Ollie, was the the half day holiday half day on a saturday so the factories the mills etc they would stop work at lunchtime on a saturday that allowed players to play and supporters to support and they could then travel on the trains to follow their team and so very quickly and you know bear in mind that the the entertainment on offer to us today is just you know, it's it's ceaseless back then there wasn't much entertainment for particularly sort of on on, on one afternoon um for the for the more disadvantaged members of society and suddenly they had the chance to go and see their football team and and the football club was very representative of of the town whether it was Preston Accrington Stanley Oldham whoever it might be and so there was a real pride in going to see their boys play and the other thing worth saying is that it's uh, women's football now which is really enjoying I was about to say a, yeah it, it is a boom but it's not the first boom because women's football was very it, popular yeah it was huge in, wasn't it yeah that's right in the late 19th early 20th century and particularly during the first world war when there were no men's football and they would get huge crowds going to the women's game great players and when uh, we say huge crowds we're talking sort of 60,000 yeah oh yeah absolutely in, in the big stadiums and uh and it just, it, it's odd how it just sort of tailed away completely in the, because the 20s was a was a, a decade of great emancipation for, for women in many, in, you know, socially and and at the workplace. Yeah, the, uh, the first woman, um, a quick plug, I've written about this, the great swim, Gertrude Edley, first woman to swim the English Channel in 1926. Men thought a woman could never swim the channel. She not only swam it, she swam it in a time that no man had the fastest time ever up to that point, beating any man men's time. So, but yeah, but women's football just sort of... Well, it was banned, wasn't it, until... It was banned for a while, yeah, that's right. I 1970, mean, yeah. I think, as late as... Yeah, um... that's, yeah, yeah. Well, when it was banned in 1921, the FA said the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged, which... It's just mad. And of course, it was only, um, so I think I mentioned this in the book, actually. It was, I remember rightly, it was 20 years ago, 2004, that Seth Blatter said a good idea for women's football would be if they wore tighter shorts to make it more appealing. I mean, we're only talking 2004 when he said this nonsense. And um, it's, um, so it's, yeah, again, it's uh, it's it's wonderful to see how women's football has uh, has just completely exploded um, not just in in Britain but around the world in the last really in the last five years and, and you know you get as you saw when in the last couple of, of tournaments the crowds going now are, are comparable to the men's game 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So one thing I wanted to talk about, the most important object, is the ball. And so we've mentioned the sheep's bladder, but how did the ball evolve? Because, I mean, nowadays, these the balls sort of almost, they seem to go in all sorts of directions, depending on the weight of the ball now. And you're always hearing footballers complaining about the ball. But in the early days, we're talking leather, aren't we? We are. I'm just looking at us there as we speak. I'm, I, I hate to say it, I'm old enough to remember playing in my youth, i.e. as a nipper with one of those old leather that had, I'm just, what I'm looking up because it had, it started off with about 12 panels and pe- people of a certain vintage will know what I'm talking about. Is, is that where, where it's a sort of, sort of rectangular stitched, strip? Yeah, sort of four of those. Exactly, stitched together. And I, I also remember playing with a, at school, playing with a leather rugby ball, which was just like soap when it got wet. And no matter how, good your hand-eye coordination was you go to catch it and it would just like a like literally like a bar of soap and heading a football i mean you know we laugh about it but the cases of of old players getting dementia and being attributed to heading a football i can well believe it because i remember playing junior football heading a wet leather football and it was you know your head would ring it was like getting punched in the face by a boxer um, it was that hard. It was actually, um, of course, one of the first people who was tasked with with creating a football was Charles Goodyear of the famous rubber company. And at first they used seven panels of leather and then it went up to 12 panels. The first 24 panels, yeah, the 1966 World Cup football was uh, 24 panels stitched together. The first 1970 it was a 32 panel. And then it was in 1986, was the first entirely synthetic material to be used. And uh, ever since then, of course, they've been back. I mean, I remember the 2010 World Cup, there were a lot of complaints, particularly from goalkeepers. It would sort of curve in the air like a Beckham free kick. And uh, even if it was just hit, sort of a, a tap back from, from a defender. And yeah, there's always complaints. But it is, yeah, it's, it's very interesting just to see that the development of a football and of course the development of the boots too is it Craig Johnson the former Liverpool player who I think it was a predator wasn't it about got about probably about 25 years ago now and, and how um oh he'd be longer wouldn't he he'd be uh, 80s 25 he played in the 80s but I think he developed the predator oh I see yeah the, the predator boot if you go into a football museum or uh, and you see what the old boots were like oh my god it's just amazing and you just see the talent of the players back then so wearing what are basically sort of dms well um, well they yeah they went up above the ankle didn't they yeah, that's right they did yeah and um so it's only really in the sort of 60s 70s they are phasing those ones out then yeah i, th- I think it's interesting ollie because in in a way we talked about the 1870s was a period sort of the mid 1860s to the 18 late 1880s when 
football really evolved as we know it today. I mean, I think probably the other period of great evolution was the same sort of time from the 70s to the 90s. And uh, football became sexy, to use a, a, a dreadful word in that context. But Rude, we, Hullet, what, Rude Hullet description there. Well, yeah. Sexy football. And of course, before that, not just how you played it, but before that you had the likes of George Best, Frank Worthington, Stan Balls. It became when footballers became celebrities. Um, and uh, and of course, the, the money began to flow into it because companies began to see the sponsor, began to sponsor it. And I think, and then we talked about how the trains opened up football within a country. And then, of course, planes opened up football globally in the 60s. Uh, well, a bit earlier, of course, in, in the 50s. But in the mid-50s, you had the, the launch of a European Cup. Um, and then thereafter, air travel began to get cheaper, particularly in the 80s. So fans could go abroad and support their teams because in the, in the 50s uh, and early 60s, when when teams would go, would go abroad to play in the European Cup, they wouldn't really have any away fans with them. That changed in the 70s and the 80s. Of course, one of the unpleasant offshoots was hooliganism. Um, what they used to call uh, the English disease in the in the late seventies and early eighties. So, so you had the development of both the football of the uh, of boots and how players began to train and and look after themselves. And, and with that came the money and the game. Now, really, is certainly in terms of financial remuneration, is is entirely different. From, from what it was in the 80s. And if I may just tell you a quick story, I am, for my sins, a lifelong Arsenal fan. Um, I, w- I was going to ask this question at, at yeah, some point. Yeah. I'm a lifelong Arsenal fan. And I remember the first time I went to see the Arsenal was in the late 70s when I was knee-high to a grasshopper. This was in the period, Ollie, when if there's any Arsenal fans of my age or older watching, they will remember this. There was this, the singing policeman. So a member of the Met Police would sing a song just as the team's ran out so that's how sort of quaint it was my junior football team our coach had been on the books uh, at Arsenal when a teenager and as a youth player and he still was in contact with uh he knew he knew some of the the staff at Arsenal this would have been about 1980 I think and he organized for our team to have a tour of the stadium so we had a uh, we had the tour of the stadium this was before such things were common it was it was a private tour. I mean, afterwards we got uh, we could we met the players and got their art- autographs as they finished training. This was the great Arsenal team. Liam um, Brady, yeah, oh, Chip, Chip Chippy, yeah, David O'Leary, Pat Rice, Pat Jennings, uh, Alan Sunderland. My hero, the great Irish striker Frank Stapleton, like me, a number nine. Now he wasn't, so I got everyone's autograph, but I couldn't see Big Frank. I said, "Oh, where's Frank? Where's Frank?" And I think someone, I think it was David O'Leary, said, oh, Frank goes out the back because he gets the bus home. So I ran out the back of the stadium and I remember there was Frank Stapleton waiting at the bus stop for the number, whatever bus. And I ran up to him and said, can I have your autograph, please, Mr. Stapleton? And he was very nice, gave me his autograph. But I just, I think I often and laugh to myself. I mean, imagine going a day and finding, uh, you know. Saka. Uh, yes, yeah, Saka, or Gabriel Jesus waiting for the, waiting for the number 12. Um, outside outside the Emirates, and um, but that's what it was. What it was, you know, they were just um, you know when you when you read of some footballers from that era and, and earlier, 
you know, on, on hard times having to sell their, their medals. And you think, oh, goodness me, someone like Saka could retire tomorrow and he'll never have to work again. Yeah, and I guess the health, I mean, you mentioned the ball and, and Jeff Assel was a famous victim of the uh, heavy ball. Um, but my favourite, actually, I was thinking about this just coming on. My favourite, it's the Radio Times. And 1927, January 27, the first live radio commentary was between Arsenal and Sheffield United. Arsenal was also the first live TV game or the first TV game to be broadcast. Why Arsenal? Because the BBC then were were located in Alexandra Palace, just up the road from the Arsenal. So it's a case of quickly tell tell your gear and go up to Highbury. And what they did was to allow listeners to follow the game, they printed in the Radio Times a diagram of the Highbury pitch divided into eight squares. And so listeners could have their Radio Times in front of them and the commentator would commentate the match referring to the squares. So you had square one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And so, for example, I just printed an extract of a commentary. It ran as follows. Oh, pretty work. Very pretty, square five. Now upfield. Oh, a pretty pass, square 5.8. Come on, Mercer. Now then, Mercer. Oh, hello. Nobby's got it, square 1.2. So that's how the commentary went. And everyone would be following it so they knew where the football was, where the, the play was, on their diagram of printed in the Radio Times. And that, incidentally, is why is the origin of the phrase back to square one. Because they would then say, oh, it's back to square one. Oh, that's fantastic. I love, I love little quirky uh, histories like that. And um, But again, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it just shows you how that's nearly 100 years ago and, uh, and you know, the, the, the media... Uh, coverage of football now it's so sophisticated and uh and it's interesting actually ollie because i wrote the book i think it was published in 2013 and there's no mention at the very end objects one of the last objects is about technology microchip because they were just at that point putting a microchip into footballs to know that to see to allow them to tell if it was over the line because England fans will well remember at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, Frank Lampard sh- uh, shot against Germany, hit the um- <laughs> hit the underside of a bar. German fans will be screaming, "Ha!" That's what happened. 19, to us. Yes, 1966. Yeah, and um, and uh, it was a uh, it was a it was over the line, but it wasn't given. So they the microchip was introduced, but also I mentioned it was then referred to as Hawkeye like in cricket and, and tennis. There was no mention, though, of VAR. So that hadn't yet, that the famous VAR, the, the scourge of football fans up and down the country who always think their team's been robbed by VAR, that hadn't come into it in, into existence yet. And it's funny, isn't it, now that it's such an integral and controversial part of the game. But even just you know, 11 years ago, psh, no, one, no one knew what the, 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 the joy of... The joy and the agony of VAR had yet to be visited on us. Well, I hope the listeners can indulge us going off on a little tangent here, but I hate VAR. And I am I support Southampton and we got relegated last year. And being in the championship this year is just wonderful with no VAR. I mean, I'm probably in a minority, but I'd rather hope that we don't get promoted just because it's awful. I think that it, it just seems to be used randomly with no real logic behind it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And I mean, 
let, I mean, let's take Arsenal this season. It's, you know, I think it probably evens out most of the time. But what I find it stops you from doing is actually celebrating a goal if there's any doubt in it there and then. Because there was a case on on Saturday, I think Saka, Arsenal, Liverpool. Saka scored the first Arsenal goal, and it was VAR checked to see if he was offside um, when he put the ball in the net. And so I, I was watching it at home, and I was sitting on my sofa thinking, "Oh, is it? Is it?" And he looked at first. I looked; it was going to be okay. But it just sort of takes that joy out of leaping up in the air and thinking, "Yes, you've scored." You saw now leap out in the air. I mean, you have you face an agonising, or in some cases, it could be the you know, if you're a Liverpool fan, you, you're sort of going, oh, "Let it be, let it be offside." But it just takes that sort of, yeah, that that instinctive emotion out of the game. And um, I'm sort of, yeah, tempted to agree. And I think rugby, it can be more difficult to tell if a try's been scored. So. I think it, that it, under a pile of bodies, etc. But I think even in rugby, the, the video technology has been used too often. Now coming back to a tries being disallowed for a, a, a forward pass like a minute minute before in the lead up, which I I don't think is right. I think it should be used just to decide if if a try has been scored. But it's an interesting one. But then of course cricket fans will tell you well it's it's been although. We're talking to you after John Crawley's controversial dismissal against India. It's, it's you know, there's, you could argue for and against... John Crawley? That's a blast from the past. Right, John Crawley. Zach Crawley. Zach, yes. Against uh, against India in, this, in the second innings of the, of the second test. Yeah, John Crawley. Yeah, it's technology. Yeah, it's, it's it all still... On the, on the plus side, Ollie, it's given sports fans something to moan about in the pub for... I don't know if because because I didn't get this far in your book um, and we can edit part of this so that the listeners don't know that. Um, but the the pub, how important is that to uh, the evolution of football or is it not important? I don't think it is particularly important. No, I think I think the, the train was more important to, to bringing fans together. But I mean, it is interesting in that the pub, I suppose, is associated with, with watching the the games on a big screen um, and that was really revolutionised by Sky and I, we, we mentioned, we talked earlier about how the, the 80s um, saw football become popular, what made it a middle, not a, it didn't make it a middle class game but it made it much, it opened it up to the middle classes was Italia 1990 and um, Pavarotti and there became actually a bit of sophistication with the way that the game was marketed it was broadcast by sky and of course at the same time you had nick hornby's fever pitch which is in the book and because i think that was a another important moment for for making the game now of course is that because you're an arsenal fan it is because i'm an arsenal fan but it's also because i think tv companies realized that they had a whole new audience before them, and so Sky was willing to put much more put to, to to put much more money into it, and and other broadcasters were then uh, forced to follow suit. But of course, the the downside to that is, of course, one could say that led to what Roy Keane famously described as the prawn sandwich brigade. In other words, the corporate football fan 
who aren't really fans, one might say, and go there just to be to be seen at the football. And they forced up ticket prices and in the process forced out a lot of middle class fans. And so if you are a father or a mother on a low income wage with two kids who wants to go and see Liverpool or Man City or Arsenal or or um, whoever it may be, even uh, Southampton, um, it's uh, it's 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 increasingly hard. Whereas I, I still remember in my youth just rocking up at Highbury and um, buying a ticket on the day for Arsenal for about a fiver, I think it was, going to see Arsenal Man United back in the 80s. Um, those days are long gone. And I think that's a shame because I think it has the game has moved away from its roots to a worrying degree. And just going back a bit during the uh, war periods, so in the First World War and the Second World War, matches, they weren't suspended in the First World War. They weren't suspended immediately, were they? No, well, that's a re- re- really good point. Ollie, actually, and um, it's something that I, one of the objects I mentioned in the book, it's the, the Lord Kitchener, uh, your country needs you poster. Because when war, when the First World War broke out in August um, 1914, rugby immediately ceased. It was just before the season started, but rugby abandoned the, uh, the upcoming season and encouraged all men to enlist. My former club, London Scottish, London Scottish Rugby Club in, uh, in Richmond, South London. I always remember going to training and walking past the War Memorial, this this large plaque, and on it were listed the names of the London Scottish players who had been killed in the First World War, a huge number. And in fact, I think there was one round of matches in August 1914 before all rugby was ceased. And London Scottish put out four 15s, 60 players, 45 of those players were killed in the war. Phenomenal. Three of the teams basically killed. But basically three of the teams, that's right. And on the Scotland-England Five Nations match in March 1914, six Scots and five English were killed in the war. So again, you know, more than a third of the players. Rugby was amateur, so it was it was easy to do that. There were no contracts to get out of football made the decision to keep going with the 14-15 season. But it did uh, allow players, professional players, or players who, who weren't contracted to join up if they wished. 2,000 out of 5,000 players enlisted. Some of those who didn't, were their clubs didn't let them. They, they, the season was, was progressing. And so they said, no, we, you've signed a contract, we're holding you to the contract. One of those was Charlie Buchan of Arsenal. At the time, I beg your pardon, he was playing for Sunderland at the time. Uh, so he he played the 14-15 season. And then as soon as the 15 season was over, the, the Football League closed down, the uh, suspended the league. He joined the Grenadier Guards and was awarded the military medal at the Battle of Combray in, in uh, 1917. Nonetheless, the fact that football didn't immediately stop playing became a point of great controversy. There were letters in the time saying it was an outrage that the players are cowards and shirkers, etc. Look at the sacrifice of rugby. And after after the war, this had grave uh, ramifications because before the war, most public schools played football and some exclusively football, some football and rugby. 
But because of the tardiness with which the Football League had responded to the outbreak of water enlistment, they said football is not the game for upstanding young men. Rugby is the game for us. 111 rugby internationals were killed in the war. So they shunned football and, and rugby became the sport of the, of the public schools. And it continued, really, I would say, until I know that football is making a comeback now in, in a lot of uh, uh, public schools in, in the UK. In, if there's anyone from, over, if anyone from America or overseas watching, when I say public schools, that's what we mean by private schools. And it's only really in the last 10 years that... Um, that football's making a comeback uh, in, in in private schools, but uh, that, you know for a hundred years football was 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 regarded as a, as a rather that's right. Even though in the Second World War, then the Football Association learnt its lesson because I think they they stopped as soon as yeah. war was declared, didn't they? Yeah, they did, and uh, and a great many of a, of a, of a professionals I uh, interviewed for one book I wrote about actually about the Second World War. I interviewed the great Tom Finney. Preston North End in England. You've uh, actually met Tom Finney. I didn't meet him. We he wasn't well enough to meet in person, but we spoke on the phone. Oh, um, wonderful! This would have been about twenty years ago, because I was a book I was writing was about the heaviest bombing raid on London and the war was May the tenth, the evening of May the tenth, nineteen forty one, and it so happened that the services FA Cup final was being played, so everyone playing it. it was Arsenal Preston and Tom Finney, who was playing for Preston, who was had joined up, was uh, stationed in the UK, he was able to play in it. So he was just sharing his memories of the, uh, of, I think if I remember rightly, it ended in a 1-1 draw and had to go to a replay. It wasn't an official cup final, it was a war. Yeah, game. yeah, I was going to say, I thought yeah. if they if they, if they suspended football, how come you've Well, got... I mean, of course, that, that's another point, um, Ollie, uh, going back to the First World War, that, and, and this, and, and you know, they, they learned the lesson there. And we, we mentioned about the success of women's football because the people on the home front, people working in the fact in the munitions factory or just you know engaged in very important work on the home front, they needed some entertainment. And suddenly just stop every sport. How are people going to take their minds off a war? Just relax. So in the in the Second World War, while they suspended the football league, they had misapplied to rugby too. They had a lot of wartime internationals featuring the England, the Scotland, the Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, stars of their day, whether it was rugby or football and cricket too, playing in front of big crowds with the proceeds going to the war effort. And these were hugely successful. So it was seen as very good for keeping up morale on the uh, on the home front. Interesting. This has been great, Gavin. I could talk about this forever, probably. I mean, I think it's interesting, as I'm talking to you from France, I think it's worth uh, mentioning the contribution of the French to football. because I'm, yeah, I'm desperate to regain my lost listeners, uh, lost French listeners, actually. So, yes, okay, let's Well, do this. of course, Jules Rimet was the man responsible for the World Cup. And then it was... Now, we shouldn't forget the the, the English, the British were wonderfully xenophobic at this stage. They didn't compete in the first World Cup or the first two World Cups in 30, no, 34, 34, 30, 34, 38, because it was beneath them playing South Americans and Johnny Foreigners in general. And then, of course, when they did compete in the World Cup in 1950, they got humiliated by America. And I mentioned that, in fact, it's a, a New York taxi because the guy... The man who scored the uh, the only goal of a game in that uh, one nil defeat by uh, the states was a uh, was a taxi driver. 
And then it was a, a Frenchman whose name escapes me for the moment, begins with a G, who had the idea of the European Cup, or of a European competition in the 1950s. Uh, I think he, he worked for L'Equipe, if I remember rightly, and he was getting a little bit fed up with English teams boasting that England was the was the great footballing nation, even though they were being humiliated by America, by Hungary, by everyone at this stage. And so he thought, well, OK, then let's let's organise a, a European competition and we'll see how good the uh, the English really are. And so began the European Cup. And of course, the Eng- English teams really struggled in the first few years. You had Celtic winning the, uh, the European Cup in 67 and then 70s. Began, began a, a period of dominance with um, uh, Liverpool in particular, Aston Villa, Notts Forest. And um, so there was the Frenchmen who were responsible for the... For the Gabriel World... Hanno, I think. Uh, yeah, that's it. Right. And the European Cup. So yeah, good for the French. That's, uh, but it's, it is funny how snooty the British were at first about... They'd, they'd, we've invented the game, no one's going to play us at it. We're just going to keep it among ourselves. And of course, when they did open it up, we, we rapidly discovered that people loved the beating us and beat us quite regularly. I think as we speak, England have had the best success since 1966 in World Cup finals. So you never know. It might happen next time. It may. I'm not very optimistic, I have to say, but at least we're at least we've reached a, a, a final for the first time since 1966. I mean, it is it is appalling, really, that talking from an English point of view that. England have only ever won a World Cup once. When you think how obsessed the the country is with the, the nation is with the game, how many people play the game, the strength of our of our Premier League, and uh, we sh- we certainly should with this young generation that we've got of, of players, um, Bellingham, Saka, etc. But we'll see. Big test for Gareth Southgate. I think that uh, you know he's proved himself a good manager, but he needs to prove himself a great manager, and you, you only do that by winning international tournaments. Well, we'll leave that for the listeners who are supporting England and for the remainder, of which there are quite a considerable number, Gavin. They'll be hoping that that doesn't happen. But Gavin, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank um, you, Ollie. Pleasure. Um, perhaps, because I know you've written about cricket as well, perhaps in when you've had a rest and gathered your thoughts, we could do cricket or, or maybe even rugby as well. But thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. Please do get in touch if you've got any comments. The Film Club continues next week with Public Enemies and Bonnie and Clyde. But until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>